welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Israel is under attack this week with more than a thousand rockets fired since Sunday from Gaza. Major Israeli cities on high alert and the threat of further violence continuing across the country. On Tuesday at noon, AJC Jerusalem director Avital Leibovich and I-24 News senior correspondent Owen Alterman spoke with AJC's Jason Isaacson to provide a frontline report on the evolving crisis. We thought that that conversation was so important that we would bring it to you now. Some of it has been eclipsed by events because it was recorded on Tuesday at noon, but the analysis from these experts remains extremely relevant. Here is that audio. Let's begin. Avital, let me start with you. First, What is the current situation in Israel and in Gaza? Are the Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket attacks and incendiary balloon launchings continuing? And what are their effects in Israel? We are now exactly uh, 25 hours after the initial rocket firing from Gaza to Jerusalem yesterday. This actually was the opening call for a wide attack launched by Hamas and Islamic Jihad as well. And until now, we are talking about more than 500 rockets to different ranges that have been fired from Gaza into Israel. The target of these rockets are civilian areas. Take, for example, the city of Ashkelon. This is a city of 150,000 people just four kilometers away from Gaza. This city was a focal point of an attack of one barrage of rockets after another today from very early in the morning until now. Just to put it in context, what does it mean, 500 rockets in 25 hours? In the whole year of 2020, the number of rockets that were fired from Gaza to Israel were less than 200 the whole year of 2020. And here we're talking about 25 hours. In addition to the situation, the Home Front Command, which is the body in charge of communicating with the Israeli public, announced a special situation in all the Israeli cities and communities, Jews, Muslims, within the vicinity of 40 kilometers from Gaza. This means that there is no school tomorrow, there was no school today, people could not go to work, farmers could not work their lands, and basically a lot of restrictions. People in my area, in the Tel Aviv area, can only send their kids to schools if the schools have available shelters for them. One of the concerns that we have right now in Israel is that Hamas and its affiliates will try to expand the range of the rockets. As we know, they do have rockets which could fly over beyond Tel Aviv, beyond Erzaliya, something like 115 kilometers. We do know that Hamas actually pre-prepared this attack. It was not something that was done in a spurge of the moment, not at all. And if you just reminisce for a minute on what Haniya said, the leader of Hamas, he said the following. 
the equation ties between Gaza and strong Jerusalem. So the main goal of Hamas here in the operation which started yesterday was to make a very clear-cut connection between Hamas's responsibility to Gaza and Hamas's responsibility, or at least what they aim to be responsible for, which is also Jerusalem. So that's where we are now, an emergency situation in half of the country. Basically, millions of Israelis are either near shelters or in shelters. Unfortunately, two elderly women died today. It's a direct hit of a building, a rocket hit a building, and dozens of others have been wounded. Of course, a lot of damage all over the country. It seems, Jason, that we still have a few more days ahead of us of other rounds of rocket firing and the retaliation. Uh, thank you, Avital. Grim report. And how is Israel responding to these attacks? Uh, we've seen terrible pictures of casualties in Gaza. In the midst of these barrages of incoming rockets, as Israeli defense forces work to protect the Israeli people, what steps are they taking to avoid civilian casualties? Well, first of all, I just wanted to thank you and thank AGC for the invitation, for the opportunity to be here. As for the situation in terms of protecting civilians, it's up to the lawyers and the military, and they are involved. The Israeli military is a very, very professional team, an experienced team, and a large team that looks at the implications of any potential operation, and they have to sign off on it. They have to sign off on it. They have to sign off on the planning. I believe they have to sign off the moment before it goes into implementation. And so that has to go through a lot of steps and a lot of approvals to get to the stage where some kind of attack is put into effect. The Hamas officials have said nine children died in an attack yesterday. I don't know that that's been independently confirmed outside of Hamas. And I have questions in my mind about just how reliable the Hamas numbers are. But an attack like that would have gone through the chain of command and would have gone through the lawyer's approval. And it is true that sometimes the Israeli Air Force, the Israeli military conducts attacks where there's a risk of civilian casualties. But that's weighed against the potential benefits operationally and in terms of Israel's interests, as it has to be under the applicable standard international law. So Israel takes steps to do that. And Israel sent a warning to the people of Gaza just a few hours ago, get away from any areas with Hamas weapon stores, because we are about to launch a huge volley of attacks targeting those weapon stores. So please get out of the way. We don't want to hurt you. Israel has no interest and no national interest in hitting civilians in Gaza. It only hurts us. One other thing I want to add importantly to the picture of what's going on here, and that's the issue of Israeli Arabs. People here are used, sadly, to rocket fire, particularly in the south of Israel. This idea of mass protests in mixed Arab Jewish cities, most alarmingly in load overnight and even this afternoon, but not only there. And of course, the situation in Jerusalem over the last few weeks, but not only in Jerusalem and not only in load is something that I think is going to concern a lot of Israelis. Hundreds of thousands of Israeli Jews, if not millions, live in mixed cities, live with Arabs as neighbors, oftentimes have very good relations. These protests are not a majority phenomenon. It's only a small group of people who are there, and even a smaller group who might be violent. But the question is, what does the rest of the Israeli public think about this? What does the Israeli Arab leadership think about this? And that's, I think, a question on everyone's minds. And that's, I think, something very, very important for us all to keep our eyes on. It may be something that dies down. It may not be. But it is something, I think, that really has the attention of the Israeli Jewish public. Thank you, Owen. Avital, let me ask you, picking up on what Owen was just saying, provoking this reaction, provoking both the rocket fire, but also the protests in Israel. Hamas has played an enormous role in all of that. 
what are the motivations and intentions of Hamas, the Iran-backed terrorist organization in control of Gaza for the last 14 years? And also, what are the motivations of the Palestinian Authority based in Ramallah? Is this explosion of violence that we've seen attributable to the long-running property dispute that we've been reading about in East Jerusalem over the last several days in East Jerusalem's Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, which has been very much a focus. But are there broader reasons or is that the, the, motive, the, the spark that lit this fire? Yeah, so we have to look at the broader picture. So there are a few points here I think worth mentioning. Basically, Hamas wishes to present itself as the protector of Al-Aqsa Mosque, as the protector of Jerusalem. The Palestinian Authority is observed at the same time as very weak. And when you have a weak entity, of course, being Hamas, you would like to place yourself in a higher rank than that Palestinian Authority. So that's the first reason, and I think the main reason for motivation. The second motivation, the reason for motivation of Hamas, is basically strengthening its status among the Palestinian streets. Hamas, of course, was anxious to have the local elections, uh, the Palestinian elections. And when this was canceled by Abu Mazen, Hamas understood that he has an opportunity now. And that opportunity is to really uh, walk over the lack of popularity that Abu Mazen, the head of Fatah party, is having or not enjoying from the Palestinian public and try to lead. Basically, Hamas wishes one day to lead the national Palestinian movement. It succeeded doing so in Gaza for the past 14 years, and it would like to do the same in the West Bank. The third achievement of Hamas, and this is something that Israel needs to analyze and make sure that this does not repeat. Hamas gave Israel an ultimatum. The ultimatum was yesterday, different hours of the day, and basically Hamas appeared here as the entity which is setting the new rules of game towards Israel. And this is something that was never done in the past. And of course, this helped uh, strengthen Hamas's image. And finally, the last motivation of Hamas does not stop only within the Palestinian areas. But as you mentioned before, there were some riots by young Arab Israelis. One of them was actually not far from my house. And this is an Arab village which we enter on a daily basis, we buy there, they come here, we go there. So this was quite shocking to us as a society. But Hamas also was part of uh, incitement towards the Arab Israelis. And by this, Hamas was able to increase its circle of influence beyond the Palestinian arena. So these are the main motivations of Hamas in this current round. Thank you, Avital. Let me pick up on what Avital was saying about the internal political dynamic among the Palestinians. So, yes, President Abbas canceled two weeks ago the election for a Palestinian legislature that was supposed to take place later this month. And the assumption was that that was because Hamas was gaining ground politically among the Palestinians who were frustrated with the status quo. What can you share about the internal contest that's unfolding among Palestinian factions? And also, what does the future hold for President Abbas, who is 85 years old, is now in the 17th year of his four-year term? Where will this go politically for the Palestinians? Well, you're right, 17th year of a four-year term. And I think for about 15 of those years, we've been asking the same question. And somehow he stays on. He stays on, at least as the titular leader of the Palestinians. The Palestinian Authority is the one that has that seat in the United Nations. 
They're the ones who can take the Palestinian cause to the international stage. So they still have some tools at their disposal. But obviously, what's happened over the last few days has exposed the weakness of the authority. They don't really seem to have much of a foothold in Palestinian public opinion. As Avital said, Hamas has shown it really can set the agenda and that it really does have traction in large segments of Palestinian society. And even Israeli Arab society is something that we're coming to learn and trying to understand. And look, no question that the cancellation of the Palestinian elections was a key part of what happened here. It really gave Hamas a reason to use its arsenal, a reason to enter into a cycle of confrontation. It gave Hamas something to gain. It gave it an incentive. Time after time in Israel, after there are different escalations, it's said that Hamas only wants quiet. They don't want an escalation. Neither side wants an escalation. It's only a mistake that can get you there. This time is different. This time, there is a sense that Hamas really feels like it has something to gain by escalating, especially by that show in Jerusalem. And don't underestimate the impact of that show, setting an ultimatum at six o'clock local time, having that ultimatum not be met, and then immediately firing on Jerusalem. What that means, I would imagine, to those Palestinian protesters standing there in the streets of Jerusalem, when they hear those sirens, see Hamas acting at the end, it's almost Nasrallah-esque in terms of its use of drama to show power and to show force and to show pride from the Palestinian perspective. So I think from Hamas's own perspective, that was very, very effective. And from Israel's perspective, look, the Israeli military has been very, very clear. They are not interested right now in de-escalation because they want to use this opportunity to cause more damage to Hamas infrastructure. They feel that Israel, because of the extent of Hamas's attacks, Israel has a legitimacy to really hit back and to really hurt Hamas. And as we all know, that has been, for lack of a better alternative, the consensus strategy for Israel and Gaza going back decades, the so-called mow the lawn strategy of every so often taking aim at Hamas infrastructure, trying to contain it, and then as it grows, attacking it again. Some have said that the same strategy is being used toward the Iranian nuclear program, but for lack of a better alternative strategy in Gaza, and there's been talk about this for decades, this is the strategy Israel comes back to time and time again, the strategy does not seem to have changed, and the Israeli military not only seems, but essentially is saying that it is using the current escalation as a chance to implement that strategy. And Can I just add something, yeah, with your please, permission? Please, no. No, please, I ahead. would just like to update the audience as we are speaking. Hamas just gave another ultimatum, basically saying that if Israel doesn't halt the operation immediately, it will fire rockets towards Tel Aviv. And this is the kind of atmosphere that we are now living in Israel. Israel, at the end of the day, was a neutral actor. It did not intervene in Palestinian elections. It did not say you can have the elections or you cannot have the elections. As you know, Israel has its own political dilemmas. Israel stood by. Of course, for Abu Mazen, it was easy to use Israel to climb down the tree and cancel the elections. But Israel, at least from its perspective, played a very neutral game, and it was right to do that. Mitchell, thank you. Um, Owen, let me turn to you and, and talk about the anti-missile defensive system that Israel has, the very effective, very accurate Iron Dome system. Hundreds of rockets have been fired at Israel, and a very large percentage of them have been eliminated by this Iron Dome system. By the way, this is a system that was developed in Israel with significant financial support from the United States. But talk about the cooperation between Israel and the United States, the defense cooperation, and how important that is to both countries, the United States and Israel. The Iron Dome system is essential. It is a game changer for Israel. From the moment it was put into action in 2012, it's absolutely changed the nature of Israel's conflicts with Gaza. 
from Israel's perspective, much to the better. Uh, most of us, I think, are old enough to remember the 2006 Lebanon war and what that meant when Israel didn't have a system like this and how different it is when we do, what it means for the military and its options, what it means for the country, what it means for the economy. And of course, we can't say this without two shouts out. One, of course, to then Defense Minister Amir Peretz, who pushed against the military to get this to the finish line and to get this built and to get this implemented and get this deployed. Of course, himself a resident of Sterot, right next to the Gaza Strip. So he understood intuitively how important this was. And again, against the advice of the military and the experts, and yet he did it. And of course, the second shout out to U.S.-Israel cooperation it is an emblem of U.S.-Israel military and generally cooperation during the Obama era. Incredibly effective, incredibly important, and I think has been a great benefit and a great badge of honor to both Israel and the United States. It may be that the Iron Dome system can be overwhelmed by large numbers of rockets fired at the same time. And we may, I say this as a may because I don't think I'm in a position to draw a conclusion, but we may have seen that earlier today with the barrage in Ashkelon. 167 rockets, I think according to Hamas, fired at one time at the city of Ashkelon. We had, unfortunately, two Israelis killed, two Israeli civilians killed in their homes by rockets that made it through. And they may have made it through because the system may have been overwhelmed. And so this system, for all of its wonders, and again, the technology improves all the time because we learn from flaws in it and make it better. There are new versions, like there are software, but it may not be foolproof. It may have weaknesses that can be exploited. Although again, even on the other side, we had a guest actually on air with us, my 24 News, a few hours ago explained that Hamas couldn't pull the same trick, for example, in firing towards central Israel because those missiles are much larger and the military can find them before they're launched. And so they can't be launched in numbers great enough to overwhelm the system. But of course, that doesn't excuse what can happen to southern Israel. And as Abitel correctly mentioned, that's hundreds of thousands of people who were spending hours today in shelters. My family and I, it seems surreal, a few days ago, went to Ashkelon. We took our son there. We went to the beach, went to the National Park. We went to their wonderful marina. And to see everyone out there is a beautiful place. I hadn't really spent so much time there in the past in one go. And to think what people there are going through. For our channel, I was at Kfar Aza, a kibbutz, right next to the border, just, I think, two nights ago if I'm not mistaken, just before the real escalation. It's just a wonderful place. And the residents there always say that it's a place that they live in because it's just a wonderful, pleasant place. And when you go there and you see you're there and you feel and you understand their perspective. But at any rate, the Iron Dome, unquestionably a game changer and a real badge of honor, both for Israel and for the United States, for the Israeli government and for the Obama administration. That was so important in getting it done. And I think it's had more than a 90% effectiveness rate that is like knocking down these rockets and mortars as well. And I think it's also important to note that we were talking before, Owen, about Israel's care in targeting these missile launchings, many of which are actually placed in and near Palestinian homes and other civilian locations, and really increasing the dilemma for Israel as it goes after these rocket fire. Owen, thank you. Avital, thank you. And now it's my privilege to introduce HAC CEO David Harris. David? Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I want to thank Avital and Owen for such an in-depth and I think quite remarkable analysis of the unfolding situation. And thank you, Jason, for moderating it. This is one of our largest audiences ever. And I think it reflects the degree of concern that all of us have at this moment in time. I want to begin by saying that I'm in awe of Israel and the Israelis yet again. I'm in awe because this country being subjected to what it is being subjected to is managing to respond with calm, with national resilience, 
with fearlessness, with a commitment to the future, and with a responsibility to act not simply out of haste or anger or passion, though they would be understandable, but rather balancing all of the respective challenges we just heard about from both Avital and Owen. Secondly, I hope after this conversation especially, that everyone sort of admits to a certain need for intellectual humility here. It's often tempting, especially from afar, sitting on one's couch or at one's desk to try and decide issues for Israel. Don't they seem so easy, so clear cut, so black and white from where we're sitting? And yet, as you just heard, they're anything but. And one Israeli leader after another has tried and essentially failed to develop a long-term Gaza strategy because that long-term Gaza strategy is not obvious. On the one hand, Israel cannot change its geography. It's destined to live alongside this Gaza Strip. Israel can also not change the outcome of what happened in the street when Hamas overthrew the Palestinian Authority violently in 2007. And yet Israel at the same time cannot engage in the kind of carpet bombing that we saw in World War II that would simply turn Gaza into rubble. So notwithstanding the criticism that Israel often hears in the international community, the fact of the matter is that Israel is walking this extraordinarily tight, tightrope, and I think doing about as good a job as it can because there are no easy, obvious, overnight solutions to the challenges of Gaza. My third point, there are those who still want to over-intellectualize what's going on. Well, let's really dig deep into Sheikh Jarrah and understand all of the legal ramifications going back a century. Or let's try and understand even better, was Israel in any way, shape, or form at fault in denying access to any single worshiping Muslim at Al-Aqsa? Yes, those are contributing issues, or I think Owen said proximate issues, but we need to step back. And we need to look at the larger picture as we gather for this phone call. Hundreds upon hundreds of missiles and rockets are being fired from Gaza across Israel, including Israel's capital, destroying fields, damaging homes, and most importantly, now killing and wounding people. And I ask a question that I asked last Thursday for those of you who joined us at our last Advocacy Anywhere call, where is the outrage? Where is our outrage knowing that Israel, which walked out of Gaza in 2005, which gave Gaza its first chance in history, something that neither Egypt nor Ottoman Turkey ever thought to do in their years and centuries of occupation of Gaza. It gave Gaza its first chance to govern itself. It gave Gaza its first chance to decide, shall we seek to become Singapore, or shall we seek to become Syria? And tragically, the choice was made to become Syria and not Singapore. And so we have today a regime, Hamas, which is, let's call it by its name, a genocidal regime that seeks ultimately a world without Israel. And Israel will not indulge the wish of Hamas. So it seems to me that this is one of those defining moments, not just for the Israeli people and their national resilience, which we applaud from afar, and not just for the IDF, which 
has always shown such extraordinary courage and ingenuity. This is a defining moment for us. This is a defining moment for us to get out of the weeds and stand up and define who we are. We stand with Israel. American Jewish Committee stands with Israel and the people of Israel as we have stood for years and decades. And as one who traveled to Israel in 1991 in the very first delegation by AJC to sit in sealed rooms with the Israelis when Scud missiles were coming from Iraq and who led an AJC delegation in 2006 when missiles were raining down on Israel from Lebanon and who traveled to Israel again with delegations in 2012 and 14 to show our solidarity when missiles were coming up from Gaza and who have raised funds to support Israeli hospitals, emergency rooms, ambulances, and other emergency services. As an organization that has stood up loudly in Washington to say, we call on the administration in both parties to stand up clearly and to say without ambiguity, without any wishy-washiness, that moral clarity is clear. We stand with Israel in its right to defend itself against genocidal terror. We, AJC, are also standing up in the capitals of Europe and elsewhere around the world through our global network to call on governments. In some cases, they don't need to be called on, they're there. But in other cases, they're squeamish. They're standing on the 50-yard line. They're hiding behind these antiseptic phrases like cycles of violence and de-escalation by all sides, as if there weren't clarity between the arsonist, Hamas, and the firemen, Israel. So for those of you who are not yet part of the AJC family, who are not yet part of this global advocacy movement, this is the moment we believe when we hope you'll consider joining us as we stand together and we say, Israel is not alone today. Israel will never be alone. All eyes have been on Israel this week, so you might have missed another piece of big news. The Pew Research Center released its latest survey of American Jews earlier this week, an attempt to present a portrait of what it means to be Jewish in America today. The survey, conducted over an eight-month time period in late 2019 and early 2020, confirmed many of the findings in surveys conducted by American Jewish Committee, especially its State of Anti-Semitism report in America. Here to discuss the American Jew, according to Pew, is Laura Shaw-Frank, AJC's National Director of Contemporary Jewish Life. Laura, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So from the top, if you don't mind sharing what you found to be the most significant, surprising, telling findings of the Pew Report. Sure. So one thing I found particularly interesting and very important for the American Jewish communal sphere is that while the intermarriage rate has remained pretty steady at around 60%, many more children of intermarried couples are identifying as Jewish. I thought that that was really interesting and really important to sort of contradict some of the older thinking in the Jewish communal sphere about the dangers of intermarriage and perhaps makes us think differently about how to interact with families that are intermarried. And of course, that means a lot to me because, you know, my mother married someone who was not Jewish at first. So uh, that's very encouraging to hear that that mindset may be changing in the community. It points to a notion of 
stigmatizing intermarried families is actually not going to do us any good. And instead, we have to embrace intermarried families and, and help them engage with the Jewish community. It seems like when we do that, we actually have children of those marriages who are identifying very strongly as Jewish. There were a few other things I found that were really interesting as well. Younger Jews are more likely to be Jews of color. 13% of Jewish respondents are reporting that they live in multiracial households. So I think that that also helps us think about the diversity of the Jewish community, which I think is something that, that we need to pay attention to. I also thought it was really interesting that the younger generations of Jews are more likely to be either Orthodox or Jews of no religion, because it feels like the center is, is falling out a bit um, as we move into the younger generation. I was going to say that could be said of our American politics, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that just as America writ large is becoming a more polarized society, so too the Jews um, are becoming more polarized in certain ways. Um, and the truth is actually, politically, there was also an interesting statistic vis-a-vis -vis that, which is that um, the liberal movements of Judaism and Jews of no religion, as in the past, identify very strongly as Democrats. But the Orthodox community has grown increasingly Republican, but you do see that there is an increasingly homogenous political opinion um, among these different sectors in the Jewish community as well. Uh, talk about the connection to Israel, which seemed very strong across the board, according to this survey, yes? The statistics were strong. And that was actually very heartening. I mean, we still do see that younger Jews have a, a weaker connection to Israel than older Jews. But the number of Jews who have visited Israel, the number of Jews who are emotionally attached to Israel is remaining pretty stable and quite high. So that was actually a very heartening thing to see for me and for those of us who care deeply about the relationship between American Jews and Israeli Jews and the state of Israel. Now, this survey was also conducted in 2013 by Pew, but they incorporated some new questions this time around. One focused on Jews of color, which you already mentioned, but also the connection to synagogue. I thought that it was fascinating that the top three reasons that U.S. Jews report attending synagogue was, one, because they find it spiritually meaningful. That's not all that surprising. But two and three were because I feel a sense of belonging and because I feel connected to my ancestry or history there. And I thought that that was really important because we think of synagogue as being a religious space, and obviously it is a religious space, but for American Jews, it's also a peoplehood space. And I think that that's something that we in Jewish communal organizations really need to pay attention to. Jews want to connect in a peoplehood type of way. They really want to feel like they're belonging to something greater than themselves, something the bigger Jewish people, and they want to connect to their ancestry and history. And that's something that can happen in Jewish communal spaces that are actually not necessarily religious. And I talked about the commonalities between this survey's findings and AJC's findings, especially when it comes to perceptions of anti-Semitism. Can you speak to what the Pew report revealed about that? Like our survey on anti-Semitism, the Pew survey showed that American Jews are increasingly concerned about anti-Semitism. Three quarters of them said that there's more anti-Semitism in the United States than there was uh, five years ago. And just over half said that as a Jewish person in the United States, they feel less safe than they did five years ago. Particularly, and we know that this is the case, I'm, I'm sitting here in New York City, that particularly we know that Jews who wear distinctively religious attire, 
like a kippah or a black hat or, you know, who look very conspicuously Jewish, those groups are particularly likely to say that they feel less safe. So anti-Semitism is definitely a growing concern, um, as we see reflected in AJC studies and in the Pew, which is, of course, of grave, grave concern to all of us. Yeah. So the survey deals a lot with the differences um, in the Jewish community, certainly proving that it is not a homogenous uh, group. And some have said that it really demonstrates or kind of underscores the splintering of the Jewish community. So, well, first of all, do you agree with that? So, Yes, on some level, I agree. I definitely see that there are places in which the Jewish community is becoming more and more different. We actually talked about a couple of them already. The fact that younger Jews are more likely to be either Orthodox or secular um, than their older counterparts who are more equally divided between Jews of religion, Jews of no religion, and the various movements, etc., um, and also the fact that among Orthodox Jews, so the higher, a very high percentage of them identify as Republican, whereas among the rest of the Jewish community, a very high percentage of them identify as Democrat. So those all do point to splintering of the Jewish community. But on the other hand, I, you know, I think that something is really important to understand about Jews in America, and indeed Jews about Jews in every. Um, external culture in which we have lived throughout history is that Jews take on the color of the society around them. Um, and that's really important. I mean, we, we do always remain distinctive, but we also really do adapt very much to the cultures in which we live. And we know that in 2021, we are living in a very, very divided America. So it would be very unusual and, and very surprising if the Jewish community wasn't also divided in many of the ways that American society is divided at large. However, I have to say I really see some commonalities and some very strong um, unifying characteristics of the Jewish community coming out of Pew. I don't think that the picture is so uh, so divided. As we spoke about already, Jews are still remaining quite connected to Israel. Um, Certainly Jews of religion are finding Jewish ritual to be very meaningful, and even Jews of no religion um, find Jewish cultural experiences to be very meaningful, and that is the same throughout the generations. So I think there's actually still a great deal that unifies the Jewish community. Yes, we have a lot of divisions, and they're not, I know I don't mean to be Pollyanna-ish, we, we should not paper over those divisions, and we need to continue to work on them and bringing, bringing the different disparate space uh, groups of Jews together um, in unified spaces and in unified ways. But I, I do think that there are some very rosy spots and some very deep levels of connection between different groups of Jews. So what role can the advocacy world also play in creating that common space? So this is something, Manya, that you and I love to talk about. And um, I, I really feel so strongly about this. I think that Jewish advocacy spaces are actually, in many ways, also Jewish peoplehood spaces. They can be very spiritual, not in a religious way, but in a Jewishly connected way. I have the privilege of working with many, many incredibly passionate lay leaders for whom I often say AJC is their shul. It's their synagogue. Um, the work that they do for the Jewish people for them is like prayer. It reminds me of Abraham Joshua Heschel's famous words that he prayed with his feet. Jewish advocacy spaces can be those places where Jews do Jewish, where they can work on the issues that they're passionate about, where they can engage with the issues that they're passionate about. And one thing I think that AJC has been doing, particularly during this time of COVID, is 
creating educational environments for our lay leaders who are so eager to have a deeper understanding of the issues they're passionate about and to delve more, really dive more deeply into understanding them in a very nuanced and very complicated way. You know, it was so interesting. I, I saw that Reformed Jews and Orthodox Jews alike were more likely to express common ground with Jews in Israel than toward each other. And I thought, wow, that really speaks to the connection with Israel. And yeah, I, I found that fascinating. I wonder about it. I think it's a very interesting statistic. And one of the conclusions that I draw from it is that a little bit it might be because Israeli Jews are actually so unfamiliar to American Jews in many ways that it's easier to feel connected with them than it is to be connected with their fellow Jews that live on the same street, but behave and worship and engage Jewishly so differently from one another. So and in many ways, I kind of find that statistic to be a rallying cry for spaces like AJC and other sort of pluralistic, non-denominational um, umbrella Jewish organizations to work to bring Jews of different religious beliefs and different backgrounds and different denominations together so we can understand each other better. Um, obviously, I'm thrilled that Jews feel connected to Jews in Israel, um, but I, I do think that there's some, something about it that is like they feel connected to the Jews in Israel because they're connected to Israel as a whole and not because they have such an intimate understanding of, of Israeli Jews. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, Laura, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this on this survey, and we'll certainly provide a link to the survey in our show notes for listeners to delve into themselves. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. For more on the connection between American Jews and Israel and other results from the Pew Survey, join Laura and experts from the Pew Research Center at noon on Thursday, May 20th for a live Advocacy Anywhere program. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Our thoughts here at AJC have been with all the people of Israel and perhaps especially our colleagues in AJC's Jerusalem office. So joining us now at our Shabbat Table this week is Avi Mayer, AJC's Managing Director of Global Communications based out of AJC Jerusalem. Avi, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Sefi, Manya, let me tell you what I hope we won't be talking about this Shabbat. I hope we won't be talking about the war raging around us, affecting the lives of millions of Israelis and Palestinians. I hope we won't be talking about the death and destruction wrought by thousands of rockets fired by Hamas from Gaza, which have devastated the lives of so many Israelis and Palestinians as well. I hope we won't be talking about these things, but I fear that we will. It's easy at times like this to get caught up in the numbers. How many rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel? How many sorties have Israeli planes carried out against Hamas terror targets in the Gaza Strip? But when we focus on the numbers, we lose sight of the human stories. I know this feeling. I felt it before. When I was a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces working with international correspondents in Israel, I often found myself consumed by numbers, by data, by facts, having to get the most important information to the reporters in the shortest possible time. And I found that from time to time, I had to take a step back and remind myself that there are humans behind these stories. Young people who are putting their lives on the line for our country, families, parents who are about to receive 
the worst news of their lives. And so today, I'd like to take a brief moment to talk about the human stories. Stories like that of five-year-old Ido Avigal, who was killed yesterday when a piece of shrapnel from a rocket fired from Gaza entered a window in his family's bomb shelter. His mother, who was severely wounded in the attack, is still unconscious and doesn't know that her son is dead. Stories like that of 63-year-old Leah Yomtov, a grandmother of five, who was killed two days ago in a rocket attack in central Israel. Her sons say they're grappling with the new reality of life without their mother. Or stories like that of 31-year-old Sumya Santosh, an Indian caregiver living in Israel who was killed in a rocket attack in central Israel two days ago. Her husband and five-year-old son hadn't seen her in several years and will never see her again. We must tell these stories. We must focus on the human stories. Because when we don't, when we get consumed by the numbers, when we focus on the data, we risk losing our humanity. And we must never lose our humanity. May it be a peaceful weekend and a peaceful Shabbat for all. Thank you, Avi. Please stay safe and sheltered. We will be praying for you at our Shabbat table, for you and the millions of Israelis who are under attack and the citizens of Gaza who also are victims in this awful, awful mess. I had not intended to talk to my children about what was going on this week in Israel, but in this work-from-home environment, when my six-year-old son runs into the room unannounced and peers over my shoulder and sees my screen, it's hard to hide the harsh reality. It's made all the more challenging when he likes to read the newspaper. Yes, my son, lover of baseball, dinosaurs, Legos, and trucks, spreads out the pages of the New York Times every morning, chooses a story, and reads to the end, even turning to the jump. On Tuesdays, he goes straight for the Science Times, but on other days, he starts with the front page. He also asks questions. Why are they firing rockets at Israel, Mom? Why is Israel sending jets over Gaza? And when he's peering over my shoulder, why did your friend just write that she's looking for a playground near a bomb shelter? It's been frustrating to see the strident voices on social media condemning one side or the other. Plowing through the propaganda takes time and effort that many are simply not willing to invest. They go with their gut or echo their peers. So watching my son gather facts and form his own opinions has been gratifying, if not a little heartbreaking. My son was born four days before the 2014 Gaza war began. I listened to radio reports while nursing him, gazed into his wide eyes, and whispered in his ear that perhaps he entered the world exactly when the world needed him, that someday he just might be a peacemaker. Call it a postpartum pipe dream. I just had a feeling. Now, seven years later, he's processing yet another conflict between Israel and Hamas. This time around, I've especially appreciated the advice of social scientist Sivan Zakai, who directs the Children's Learning About Israel Project at Brandeis University. During that terrible clash between Israel and Hamas, she interviewed dozens of Jewish elementary school children about how they process the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We tend to underestimate our children, she said in a recent column. When children learn to read fluently, like my son, they recognize when they're not getting both sides of the story. They don't appreciate it when grown-ups try to shield them from the facts. Both sides of the story, or as one rabbi friend of mine said this week, tears on both sides. At this time in my son's life, when he's learning about empathy, the tears on both sides are so crucial to understand. 
My husband did the math last night. In another seven years, our son will be looking forward to his bar mitzvah, processing these issues on a whole new level. But I pray that both sides will have come to a peaceful resolution by then. Tears on both sides and prayers for peace. That's what we'll be sharing at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi? I'll be interrupting myself during this recording whenever the Red Alert app on my iPhone tells me that a rocket siren is going off in Israel to try to provide a sense of what it's like to be there right now. Nadine Awad was a 16-year-old Arab Israeli who should be alive today. Rockets are reported at the Ben Shemen Youth Village. Nadine should be alive today worrying about finals and first loves. Ido Avigal was a five-year-old Jew who should be alive today as a rocket attack as the siren goes off in Lod. Ido should be alive today wondering about dinosaurs and outer space. Both were murdered this week by Hamas rockets launched from Gaza as I get an alert that there is a siren going off in Achiezer, Israel. Nadine's teacher memorialized her saying, uh, rocket attack in Beit Arif, memorialized her saying, I know it sounds like a cliche, and they always say that the best people are the ones who lose their lives, but Nadine really was a very, very special girl. She was in 10th grade studying in the biology chemistry track. She had dreams of changing the world. She was such a special girl, such a talented girl. We'll never know what Ido might have become, or Nadine. Nadine, Ido, and so many other innocent children, Jews and Arabs, never had the chance to change the world, all because of Hamas terror. There's now uh, sirens going off in uh, Zaitan, Hadid, and Tirati Huda. Nadine's father, Khalil, was also killed, and Ido's mother and sister were injured. Pray for them. This has been a terrifying week, a confusing week, a sad week. Anti-Israel activists are thronging the airwaves and clogging social media feeds, talking about Sheikh Jarrah and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the innocent Palestinians who get caught in the crossfire between Israel and Hamas. They're trying to distract you from the fact that one side, Hamas, aims at civilians and the other side, Israel, aims at terrorists. From the fact that one side, Hamas, impoverishes its people to buy rockets, and the other side, Israel, invests in creating the world's most advanced missile defense system, the Iron Dome, to try to protect its people. From the fact that one side, Hamas, has as its raison d'etre the destruction of the Jewish state, and the other side, Israel, has in its very declaration of independence a call for peace with its Arab neighbors. Don't get distracted. It's ironic for me to talk about distraction because as I made my way through that one paragraph, sirens went off in Tirati Huda, Yagel, Kfar Truman, Beit Nehemia, and the Nesher Industrial Zone in Ramla. Regardless of side, May the memories of all the innocent people, Jews and Arabs, Israelis and Palestinians, killed in this fighting be for a blessing. You know, we say Shabbat Shalom as kind of a generic sign-off here, much as we use it each week as kind of a generic greeting. But of course, it means 
may this Shabbat, this day of rest, be a peaceful one. And so I say with more emphasis than perhaps I ever have in my life, may we all have a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.